had to lose the Britney Spears look, but here we are. So, um, I'm Emily, and if, if I like hold it too low, my dad would always yell at me for that. Or like, you can't hear me. Somebody in the front here just like say something. Anyway, I'm Emily. If I haven't met you yet, welcome to Crash. And um, I'm really excited to talk with you guys tonight, mostly because what I'm talking about is just my personal story and like my personal journey with Jesus over the past few months. So I hope that is what comes across. Um, so to start off, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. And well, let me ask a question first. How many of you in here like chocolate? A shocker. Room full of women. Yeah. Okay. Well, I do too. I always have. Um, since I was 10 months old, actually, my mom, um, told me I had just started to like, like soft foods, you know, like when babies are at that point. And so she gave me like the littlest, teensiest piece of brownie and I really loved it. So she gave me a little more. And then anyway, later that day, uh, I started having this like red spots that popped up and the pediatrician said it was chicken pox and actually said, don't come in in case you spread it to the kids in the waiting room. It's pretty run of the mill. So my mom said that I was pretty unhappy and like, you know, itchy and you know how hives are. They're no fun. And so to make me happier, she just kept feeding me little pieces of brownie. And before I share this story, she's like, tell them that I normally wouldn't feed brownies to a 10-month-old. So <laughs> anyway, she's like, but you were so upset. And she's like, but the next morning you were even worse. Hives everywhere. And then I put two and two together. And it wasn't a wheat allergy. It wasn't a gluten allergy. It wasn't a dairy allergy. It was a chocolate allergy. And so from ages two to five, um, I couldn't eat chocolate without breaking out in hives. But that didn't exactly deter me. So there was the Easter where two-and-a-half-year-old Emily, my aunt and uncle were missionaries in England, and they would send home this British chocolate, and it was like the prized possession when we were little. And I took my seven-year-old cousin's British Easter bunny, hauled off behind grandma's recliner and like plowed through it (laughs) and broke out in a lot of hives, but I didn't really care. Um, Again, I honestly didn't, I didn't, I don't think like the hives must not have made enough of an impression on me. Like whatever, I just felt like my mom was trying to keep away something that was very good. Like she didn't understand how I loved chocolate more. And uh, one time we were up at our cabin, and there was a bag of chocolate chips there. And I knew I wouldn't get any when they used them in a recipe because I wasn't allowed to have the chocolate. So I wasn't actually strong enough to rip the bag, but I had very sharp teeth at that point. And so I bit a hole, and then I wedged myself in between the stove and the fridge, and I sat there, and I just ate chocolate chips until I was found, burst out into hives all over again, decided it was worth it. Um, thankfully when I was five, that quit happening. I think it's because I exposed myself over and over again. (laughs) Like, I think that, I think that's the point. Anyway, um, the point is that I've always had a slight problem with going along with things when I don't see the point, or if I think that the rules are a bad idea. Um, and honestly, I think that's probably a human tendency and it kind of manifests itself a little bit differently based on personality. Um, but that's what we're talking about tonight. It's how rebellion comes out, what it looks like, um, what it is, and then how do we get close to God and how do we foster this relationship with him when there's this thing within us that like fights back all the time. Um, so I want to stop and pray and invite God in and let's do that. So Jesus, thank you for the work that you've done 
at Crash through this series and for the work that you've done in our hearts beforehand. And I pray tonight that you would show us the places that you would like to have open so you can come in and work on them. Show us the places where we haven't surrendered and that mostly um, we would walk away from tonight having experienced you in a new way. So we invite you in, in Jesus' name. Okay, so we're focusing on communication, and rebellion is a facet of our communication with God. But kind of what is rebellion exactly? Because when I first hear, I love that Carter thought of the British rebellion in tea. Because when I thought of rebellion, I imagined, like, gothic teenagers, like, you know, those fights you have with your parents, like, slamming, walking out the front door, being like, you're not the boss of me. That's what I think when I think of rebellion, like, over feedback that you are not thrilled about something. But you know what? I think we do ourselves a disservice by thinking that's all that it is, or at least I have before. Because what God has been teaching me over and over again recently is that rebellion starts when I believe that I, through my own will and power, can obtain something better for me than what God will give. Through my own might, I can obtain something better for myself than what God will give. In John 10.10, Jesus said that he came to give us life, and he came to give it more abundantly. The thief comes to steal and slaughter and destroy. Those aren't, that's not a light phrase. The thief comes to steal and slaughter and destroy. I came so they might have life and have it abundantly. So God never intended for us to have boring, restricted lives. Like, abundant life? Are you kidding I want to delve into that so much right now. I'm going to hold back a little bit. We're going to talk about that because I, that phrase, that those words have to be unpacked because we have to lean into what rebellion actually is, where it came from, what it looks like, so we can get to the other side and get past this idea that by surrendering to God and saying no to rebellion, we are losing out because that's not true. So where it started, where it started was back in Genesis, in Genesis 3. And I like the message a lot. I don't know if anybody else does. Oh, and it lost my place. Fabulous. Well, oh, is it on the screen? It is. Okay. The serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman, do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? Guys, that is actually a sales technique. I'm in sales, which is also kind of like manipulating people when you think about it real hard. So that, like, Satan asked a question that didn't, beyond needing, like, a yes or a no, he actually gave, put some incorrect information. He knew that she could, she could have from any tree but the one. But if he had asked that flat out, it would have just given her a clear yes or no. He threw something off in the question, so she had to engage. Does that make sense? Like, he just wanted to get her to buy in, and she does buy into the conversation. She says, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle that God said, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it, or you'll die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything. 
ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that tree look like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit and gave some to her husband, and he ate. And immediately they did see what was going on. They saw themselves naked. He didn't sell her on a rebellion. He didn't sell her on an uprising. He sold her on the idea. He put this idea in her mind that God was holding something back from her, that God did not have her best interests at heart, and that she had to obtain something for herself. She had to fight for something and use her own human ability to get something. And do you see that part that says, when the woman saw the tree look like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, that is what I do every day. I'd, it starts out with just like forgetting to consult God. Sometimes it's more intentional. It's avoiding. But it, every mistake that's ever been made, every sin, every rebellious thought has begun when I've looked at something from my own perspective and thought about what I would get out of it, how I need to make that happen, and I don't bring it under the sovereignty of God. That's where Eve started. So we see where rebellion came from, but I think what is going to be the bulk of this is looking at what, how rebellion manifests itself in our life. And on the flip side of that, what does surrender look like? Because just knowing that rebellion is bad is like never enough. Um, but what does it look like to have the life that's not marked by that anymore. Okay, so, talking about communication, rebellion's a facet of communication. How many of you guys have ever heard that statistic that 80 to 90% of our communication is nonverbal? Okay, yeah, I did too. Probably because I was communications major in college, so we talked about it a lot. Okay, I was looking back into those studies and those statistics in preparation for this talk, and I found something really interesting. That statistic, that 80 to 90% of communication is nonverbal, is not entirely accurate. There were two studies back in 1967 by a guy whose name I cannot remember, but it sounds like Arabian. And he co-authored two studies the same year. And they came up with this, like, formula that it, it took people's communication, which is everything they're projecting, and it gave weight not only to what they said, but also to the tone they said it and to their body language while saying it. And it's from those studies where he talks about the importance of body language and tone that we got that statistic. But what his conclusion really was, what he actually said is that when there are inconsistencies between attitudes communicated verbally and posturally, the pastoral component, so posture, Think of like your body language, what you look like, should dominate in determining the total attitude. What it all boils down to is that when you, what you say and what you do or how you look, how you present it, don't match up, the human mind and brain is hardwired to evaluate and take as truth what they see versus what you're saying. And, like, we know this instinctively. That's why there's, you know, like the running joke about people are like, I'm fine, and you obviously know they're not fine. Um, it's because you know not to trust the words. You know to trust their facial expression, what their posture looks like. And it is the exact same thing with God. 
We don't have a God who wants lip service. Jesus did not come and give his life and ask us to step into a relationship with him because he wants us to say submissive things, because he wants us to speak surrender. When our hearts and our actions and our posture toward God doesn't match up to what we're saying, well, that matters. And that's why rebellion towards God is so much more than just the words that we say or the big sins that we think of when we think of surrender and submitting sin. We can't fool God. Our attitude toward God is more accurate than the words that we speak. Our attitude toward God is more accurate than the words that we speak. So, (laughs) I don't know if there are any other people like this in this room, but I've never had, like, a strong stomach. I'm not a girl who even can watch Grey's Anatomy. When I was 11 years old, I really wanted to be a veterinarian. I had since I was a kid, and I saw our dog get one shot, one shot, and I got lightheaded and had to go lay down. And that was when I knew I wouldn't be a vet. Well... Then last summer, I had to get blood drawn. And long story short, I knew going in I was queasy. Like, I, I told the nurse that. And they're like, do you want to lay down? I'm like, no, just put me in a chair. I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So about 10 minutes later, I, like, woke up to this, like, eight nurses in my face. And I realized I had actually passed out. And what's worse, it looked like a seizure, so I had to call Crystal. Crystal came, drove me to the ER, and she bought me a chicken biscuit. So... It was a really, really good bonding moment. I wasn't thrilled about being at the ER, but, you know, we made it. We made the best of it. So imagine, and the ER has never been a happy, like, I've never been to the hospital for anything but that one time. I was, like, kind of prided myself on my lack of a doctor's record. So that happened, and then a few weeks later, well, they say pride comes before a fall. Well, I thought I was doing really well for myself one night, making sweet potato fries for dinner, and nobody else was home. And I took out a paring knife to cut the sweet potatoes. And all I can say is that it didn't end well for one tip of my finger. I'm standing there with my kitchen sink, like, horrified, and then also immediately super lightheaded, super weak. So I wrap a paper towel around my finger, lay down on the floor, and hold it up like a white flag of surrender, and I call my friend Tina. (laughs) And Tina is the world's best friend, and she came over, and she's like, help me fix dinner she made my fries for me that I kind of, and don't worry, the fries were clean. Like, I, this all happened over the kitchen sink. And she's like, um, Emily, I think you should go get stitches. And I'm like, no, I don't need stitches. Do you see this, like, wad of paper towels? They're doing fine. And what I was going in my head was like, no, because I know how I am with needles. I passed out over getting blood drawn. And if I go into the doctor... You don't go to the doctor just to, like, hear their opinion. You go so they can fix it, and they're going to want to touch it, and they're going to want to do things to it. I will not have it. I'm fine. So Tina suggested this gently a few more times, went home. So the next morning, it still looks like I have a full-on cast. That's how hard I'm trying to bandage this thing. I also don't want to back out of a run I had scheduled with a friend. And if you think about running, you have your hand down by your side, and running naturally makes blood, like, pause through your body. So I will spare any other queasy people the details, but suffice it to say, after the run, my kitchen sink once again looked like a crime scene had occurred. 
and I once again was on the floor just trying to stay conscious. Guys, it's a finger. It's a finger. Can you imagine if I was a nurse? Nobody would live. <sighs> so I'm on the floor, like, flat out. I call my roommate, and I'm like, I think I have to get stitches. And the whole way that we're going there, I'm so full of anxiety and fear because I know they can probably help me, but I am so afraid of what it's going to take. Like, stitches. I've never, I've never been to the ER since a couple weeks ago for fainting. Like, how bad are stitches? I, guys, I wasn't even stung by a bee till last summer. It wasn't anything good. I was walking barefoot on the beach at 7 p.m. and I stepped in the stand on the wasp. Are you kidding me? That's what I waited for? So, anyway. <laughs> I digress. Got into the doctor's office. They're like, you have to show us your finger. So I hold it out. I'm like, you can look, but you can't touch. <laughs> very, very good patient. And the, it was a physician's assistant at this point, and she's like, I have to be able to touch it to see how bad it is. And I'm like wincing. It really did hurt. Probably because I had tried to doctor it for like 18 hours at this point, and it was well beyond my scope of uh, <laughs> control. She's like, you know what? We'll make this easier on everybody. She's like, I'm going to numb your finger so we can do what we need to do to it. And I was like, so you mean you're going to put a needle in it? And she's like, it's going to hurt for a second, but then it will feel better. And you'll be happy because you won't feel it. Guys, I am laying there flat with my finger out like this, holding my roommate's hand like it's Pearl Harbor. And she's like, it's okay. It's okay. She's watching this. She's the one who watches Grace. She's fine. So I finally give in. Within like two seconds of that shot, I was like, this is great. It worked. It did what she said it would. My finger is starting to get numb. She's like, goes about doing the stitches thing. And I hear this, mm, mm, uh. And she goes, get the doctor. And I was like, oh, no. It's so bad. She can't even fix it. I'm going to live like this for the rest of my life. I can't even look at my left hand because I'll pass out. She gets my doctor, and he comes in. And he, literally, the stitches didn't work. It was just, it, it, I don't know. I won't go into detail. I'm really scared there's somebody else in here like me, and they're going to be on the floor in a few seconds. But um, anyway, suffice it, stitches didn't work, so we had to try something else. I was losing faith in them, even as I was clinging to them like they were my last hope. I think I was, I was saying really dumb things. I was so scared. But the reason I was scared is because there was something incapacitating me. It took me out of control. That's what was freaking me out. I didn't like the fact that I couldn't even look at my own hand without passing out flat on the floor and being utterly useless. And it scared me that I had to rely on somebody else, and I had to be willing to go through pain so that I could regain control. Does that make any kind of sense? At the end of the whole thing, my doctor goes, okay, I'm all done. He said, you're all cleaned up. You can look at your hand again. I was thinking in my head, no, I saw my hand before. Oh, I don't know how you could have cleaned that all up. I'm pretty sure I'm going to pass out again. I did turn my head. And guys, where there had been mess, he literally had cleaned me all off. The only thing that was left was this little bandage on the very tip of my finger. And I will never forget the feeling of just, like, complete and total, utter gratitude that I could resume my life again and that I had actually gone through the discomfort of letting somebody else fix it, and I was fine. I was fine. But I think about that, and I think about the feeling of wanting so desperately to be fixed and being so frustrated that I couldn't do it myself and not wanting the discomfort 
of having to let somebody else make it worse to make it better. And that is where my heart is with God all the time. Because you know the feeling, you know that natural discomfort that you have when there is a barrier between you and God. There's something that's not quite right. And sometimes it's not even a big thing. Sometimes it's just like you know it's one of those days and nothing is making you happy and nothing is going your way and you just don't feel like leaning in, like turning in, like making your human nature bow before God. And you know in your head and you can speak out of your mouth your devotions that morning, Lisa Turkier's book you're reading, the crash talk that you heard the other week but your heart and your posture toward God give you away. You're laying there with your hand out, saying, you can look, but you can't touch. I'll talk to God about it, but I don't want to surrender and let him fix it. Every time I choose to control a situation, instead of inviting God in, I'm rebelling. Every time I choose to control a situation instead of inviting God into it, I'm rebelling. Abundant life. I want to be honest with you guys. When that thing with my finger happened, what God really said to me about 24 hours later when I was reflecting on it is, Emily... You know that guy that you keep trying to date who's not exactly saved? And you keep wondering why you're hurting and why you're getting banged up and bruised? Would you like to talk to me about that now? And I did not want to talk about it, but I did. Because every time we choose something other than what God wants for us, We are saying that we think that we need something that he is not providing, and we think it's going to be better. And we understand that God is sovereign and that he loves us. But obviously, he doesn't quite know what's best because we can tell that this is going to be better. Every time we choose to try to control someone that we love, to try to tell them how they should do things, Every time I choose to pursue a relationship with somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Christ. To, from the big sins to sex and pornography. Where when we make that choice, what we are ultimately saying is, I need this and what it will give me more than I need God. And I would rather have this because this is better than what God will give me through surrender. Because surrender is a slow burn. There is immediate peace in my heart, in your heart that comes after talking to God, there is, there's just a release. But then part of that is sitting with God and saying, okay, you get to do this the way you want to do it. And whatever that looks like, I'm in. I want to explain something, though, because I'm pretty sure that anybody who's been in church for any amount of time is accustomed to hearing about how God doesn't want us to be rebellious and sinful. We don't have a -a whack-a-mole God who sits up from above and watches us pop our heads up and try to do things, and he just waits for us 
to bounce back into submission. If he wanted that, he would have created us like that, but he doesn't. He created us so that we could come into relationship with him. And when we messed up, like Eve did in the garden, when she did that for all of us, he said, I'm not going to let you be separated forever because I want you. And I have come so you might have abundant life. I have a little niece and nephew. And there are some other little kids in my family. And when I think of this abundant life thing, like I think of them. Because you know when a kid does something and you know they did it. Like, you know, they broke the rule, they did that. And they come to you, and they're at your feet, and they're looking up at you, their little faces. You don't love them any less. You don't. But if they lie to you about it, if they try to act like it didn't happen, if they try to act like they're not doing something wrong, does that not change the dynamic? But does it change how you look at them when you look at their little face and the love that you feel inside for them? It doesn't change anything, and your sin does not change God's love for you, but it does change the dynamic of the relationship between you and him. And that's why rebellion is a problem and why it has to be addressed. And I'm crying because this has been so real in my life. And the only reason I'm saying this stuff is because it's been something I've gone back over and over and over with God. God is more than a doctrine to be held. He is a relationship to be experienced. I got to give credit to A.W. Tozer for that because I did not come up with that one on my own. He's more than a doctrine to be held. He's a relationship to be experienced. On the other side of surrender, there's a lot of joy. And the long game with God is always the better choice. And one thing that has been really cool, well, let me talk about this real fast. How to approach God and open the door to change. So these are all really good things, but I feel like some practical tips on moving into this are what have helped me a lot. Um, A.W. Tozer also said in the same book, approaching God seriously and openly, wanting most of all to be honest with him, is the start for all of this, the catalyst open and honest communication with him. And when I say open and honest, you don't, the beauty of a relationship with God is that I don't have to filter anything that I say with him. When I went into that conversation with God about that guy who wasn't saved, that was not filtered. It was my raw, open, honest thoughts being communicated toward God, but the more I talked to him, the more I, I sought him, the more I asked him and told him I was done, I was tired of fighting, I just wanted him to come in and start moving in me. He did, and he responded. And that open, honest, vulnerable space is what God needs. It's what he wants in our hearts. Ashley talked a few weeks ago about the thoughts in our brain and how they carve out little highways. Yes, that's so true. And every time I make space in my heart for God and I move from this posture of I don't really want to talk about it to this is uncomfortable and I don't feel like it, but I'm going to bring this before God and open myself up for him to work. 
every time I do that, it gets a little easier the next time. I was going to say a few minutes ago is a huge component of this in my life has been writing out these situations. Sometimes I've just been writing out my first draft. God, I don't get this. I don't get it. What's going on? Here's where I'm inviting. I'm inviting you in. Here's what I'm surrendering. Because those incidents of surrender in my mind and the feeling that follows, when I look back on that written and reflect back on those memories months later, I remember and see now, months later, what the outcome was of letting that go. It has never once been bad. And that turn in my heart, it does carve a pathway. And the next time, I'm like, yes, I don't want to do this, but I know the last time and the last time. And so I'm going to step into it saying yes to God again. Does that make sense? The second part of how to approach God and just like start this conversation is to remember that he loves you more than anything else. Don't go into it with fear and trembling and don't buy into the lie that God is like far off, that he's far away, that he's upset with you, that this is one time too many, that he's about rules, that you have to change all at once. No. Go back to the verses about the abundant life he wants to give you and the love that he has for you. And maybe just stay there for a while and start the conversation. There is this song printed out on your handout. And so the title is a little Christian cheesy. It's called Hold Me, Jesus. God's used it again and again and again. And there's this one phrase that always gets me. Um, It says, I'd rather, surrender doesn't come naturally to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give. I've been a fighter for what I don't really want, but looks good since I was 10 months old. I'm guessing that's probably a lot of us. So we're going to play this song just feel free to journal on your notes to bow your head. There's paper in the center of your tables to write on. If you're not a writer, not a journaler, just bow your head. Take some time and reflect or talk to God. And when you're done talking to God about surrender and and the song ends, then talk to your table and share what that looks like for you right now and what God is calling you to surrender and how he's moving in your heart. So go ahead.